Welcome to The Counselor's Chair, a podcast brought to you by Traverse Counseling Services. Join us as we explore all things human, mental health, psychology, philosophy, and a few extras. Be sure to check us out on all forms of social media and visit our YouTube channel at The Counselor's Chair. everyone. Welcome back to the Counselor's Chair. We're super excited to tackle the Enneagram in this long-anticipated podcast with Wesley Nichols. Wes is a licensed marriage and family therapist with Traverse, and he's highly trained in both the Enneagram and EMDR therapy. As Andrew says, Wes has forgotten more about the Enneagram than we will ever remember, so if you're looking for a good resource, this is definitely it. Wes is also the owner and main coach with Enneagram Chattanooga, which serves individuals, couples, and businesses looking for ways to utilize the Enneagram for growth and change. So we hope you enjoy the episode as we explore the Enneagram history, types, ways to type yourself, and our own personal experiences with the Enneagram. All right, I'm here with Andrew and Wes. Wes, we're really excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for carving out some time to be here. Um, we're super excited to hear what you had to say about the Enneagram and everything you're doing down in Ch- Chattanooga. So thanks uh, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, no problem. Glad I can get to talk a little bit about this. Yeah, so the Enneagram has become very, very popular, and you've probably heard of, heard of it, whether it's in your work in one of your friendships, at your church, uh, maybe from your therapist, but it's coming from all, all types of angles now. And um, Wes is our in-house expert, and um, we're excited to excited to hear what the Enneagram is all about. Um, so Wes, let's, uh, let's kick this off with, you know, what, what are you doing in Chattanooga now? You started Enneagram Chattanooga. Will you tell us a little bit about what that is and, and what your aspirations and hopes for that? Yeah, so Enneagram Chattanooga, that's something I started this year, um, and it's really offering Enneagram services to individuals, couples, businesses, organizations, and really the public at large. Um, Really kind of trying to serve this community by, yeah, digging into the Enneagram and how this can be helpful in these different spaces. Right on, man. So uh, can you tell us a, a little bit, like, um, a little about about the the types of people you're trying to reach, whether that's businesses, individuals, and um, how you meet with them. I think would be really good too. So, yeah, 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 definitely. So individuals and and couples, kind of what I'm offering services for is one kind of understanding uh, the system in general and how this shows up in your life and that aware that self awareness that can really be helpful in your relationships and personally. Um, and then there's also kind of um, with some of these individual sessions. Uh, a path forward for growth. What does it look like to use this tool to really grow? What are some of the goals you might would have and how can the Enneagram be helpful to get you to those? Kind of on the individual and couples uh, realm for that one. For businesses and organizations, really the Enneagram can be such a helpful tool to really help your team and help the people that you're working with better understand one another. Um, you know, I uh, emotional intel- intelligence um, is one of the big things that's kind of circulating in the workplaces these days, and the Enneagram speaks to that in a really incredible way. And so kind of the seminars and workshops I do with businesses can help bring that to life. That really brings your team together and also can help you guys work towards the common goal. Um, and so then also, again, just for the community in general, I hold public events that can help people learn more about the Enneagram. But really more than that, it's, it's learn more about themselves. How can I better understand why I do the things that I do? How can I better understand my spouse, my friends, 
um, the people I work with and, and use this tool to really bring about true and authentic growth and connection. So those are kind of the spaces um, that I'm really trying to use Enneagram Chattanooga to, to serve. Well, that's awesome, man. It's definitely really needed in the community, especially for that <clears throat> emotional intelligence piece, whether it's in relationships, whether that's you know, in your workplace or even in, in churches as well. I know it's kind of popular amongst amongst the religious communities, right? I think it has some origins there, which you're going to talk about. Um, so, so that's awesome. And how would people get a hold of you to to either schedule an appointment or to you know to plug into your services? Yeah, definitely. Um, so you can go to enneagramchattanooga.com. That's my website. It talks a little bit about the different services I offer, um, as well as kind of a recap of the, the Enneagram in general. Um, I have some kind of a resource that people can use that helps you maybe figure out your type. Um, it's kind of a free resource that's offered. Um, and then you can also follow um, us on Instagram and Facebook at, at Enneagram Chat. Um, and again, those are kind of resources that give further information um, about types in general, about how to figure out your type. I know there's some upcoming series um, about kind of the focus of attention for each of the types. So basically what does each type focus on um, and how this can be, this awareness, right, can be helpful in um, trying to learn what it means to grow. Oh, cool, man. So if you guys are interested, which I highly recommend that you check it out, uh, again, Wes is really schooled on this stuff and I think you're going to figure that out as we move through uh, this podcast. <clears throat> so we're going to and I hopefully hit on what the Enneagram, Enneagram actually is, um, how it can be useful both personally, professionally. Uh, we're gonna, Wes is going to give us a, a pretty cool overview of each type, maybe talk a little bit about how you would go about finding your type. And then we're also going to talk about our personal experiences with it, which I think will be really, really valuable. So um, Wes, I mean, what? so tell us, what, what is the Enneagram? <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah, question. that's a good a good place to start. So on a really basic level, um, the Enneagram is a personality typing system based on an ancient symbol and the idea of there being nine basic personality types. Now, the kind of the depth to this system, there's it's so much more than than just that. But at a very basic level, that's what it is. And and really, for me, obviously, for me to be a place where I've founded Enneagram Chattanooga um, and where I'm kind of offering these services to people, there has to be something that really drew me in and and really showed me this is something that's worth kind of sharing. And and for me, a big part of that was the Enneagram gets at the why. It gets at why we do the things that we do. Mm. Um, and that is just such uh, an important component when it comes to being aware of ourselves and really trying to grow. Um, I know some people who don't really care for personality stuff because it feels like it puts them in a box. It feels like it kind of confines them in a way or... It feels like it's just confirming things that they already know. Like, well, yeah, I mean, you're just listing out these behavioral characteristics I already know about myself. Like, okay, that's cool, but how is that really helpful? Um, and really, for the Enneagram, it's it's neither one of those because this is getting um, to the motivations and the internal drives. This isn't based on behavioral descriptions, but again, the why. Hmm. And what that looks like is we all have patterns of thought, emotion, and behavior. These are kind of our default reactions to the world around us. Hmm. Um, and so what the Enneagram provides is an internal map of what those things are. What are kind of these things that define us and, and how can we not be defined by these? Mm -hmm. A lot of these things are kind of unconscious. We're not even aware of them. We're just reacting to the world around us. And so what the Enneagram provides is, is a map to understand that 
and, and to kind of bring some freedom from those things. And so what happens is we oftentimes become uh, defined and identified with these. Well, this is just kind of how I am. This is who I am. I just kind of react this way. This is just kind of part of part of me. And what the Enneagram really wants to say is that our default responses, our default reactions, were so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we can shed light on these things, we can open up the opportunity for us to not live reactively out of these patterns. We open up the chance for deeper growth and change. And so, you know, we talked about putting people in a box. Really what the Enneagram does instead is it shows you the box you're already in and how to get out. Um, and that message right there is so much maybe more freeing for people mm-hmm. than this idea of, okay, I'm going to be kind of constricted by this, this type. Um, and so the, the Enneagram is a powerful tool to kind of map our internal world um, and show us how to get out, right? How to, mm-hmm. to grow in a sense. And there's a clear direction for that. Well, it, it's, it's cool that you say that too, this idea of the box that we're in and kind of the box that we want to break out of too, right? I, I was recently reading an article on the on the Myers Briggs actually, <clears throat> and it, I mean it's a it's a fine test. It's been around for a long time. Another personality test, but this article actually outlined and walked with um, four different people who believe their life was ruined by person by that personality test, particularly because of what you were talking about. This phenomenon of being stuffed in a box or being like, Oh, this is what you are. And that's how they were, they did it at work. And so all of their colleagues wind up seeing them in that box. They feel like they're trapped in the box or like they've been lying about other aspects of their personality because like, Oh man, like I'm, I'm, I'm solely this. So to hear you say like the Enneagram is meant to be expansive and grow your life versus columnize and categorize you uh that's really cool uh, that's really cool man i'm glad uh i'm <laughs> i'm i'm glad that it has that outcome rather than uh than the the categorizing or stuffing somebody in a box outcome that's for sure yeah no definitely because yeah i hear that stuff like what you just shared like all mm-hmm. the time it, it's a big turnoff right if if people are kind of because it's easy, I guess, to hear some of these descriptions or hear some of these types and be like, oh, okay, well, I've got you pegged, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you're, I got you down. That's how you are, and that's how you're always going to be. And mm-hmm. that doesn't feel good to anybody, right? Mm-hmm. And so it really can be helpful to see that this system allows you to live into the strengths and the gifts that each of these types has. Yes. But then also become aware of, okay, here are some of the struggles. Here are some of the challenges. And maybe here are ways to try to minimize how much that's showing up. Mm-hmm. And I think what's important with this kind of growth piece is, we're maybe not going to ever get rid of the default kind of instinct mm-hmm. to respond in a certain way, to react in a certain way. But what we can really begin to develop is the ability when that comes up to pause, mm-hmm. to take a breath and choose how you want to respond mm-hmm. as opposed to just reacting out of these default patterns. Oh. Um, and that's really so much of what we want to get at when it comes to this growth piece. Got you. So how do you, how do you go about helping somebody create that, create that pause, right? Because it sounds like when we're talking about how to use this to grow personally, relationally, like that pause seems like it's a really, really important, uh, important part of using the Enneagram as a tool. Yeah, no, I, that the pause I think is, is essential quite honestly, because I, I kind of how I like to, to think about it sometimes is we just, we go on autopilot. So often in our lives, we're just on autopilot and we're just, again, living our life and just kind of reacting to the world around us and we're not truly really present to ourselves and our internal world and what's happening Mm -hmm. 
we're just, again, we're just kind of reacting to whatever is going around us in our default patterns. And so really what, what I think can bring a, a bit of presence, a bit of mindfulness is being able to stop and take a breath. It's almost kind of like a, a reset that, that kind of allows us to zoom out mm-hmm. and to kind of look at ourselves and see what's actually going on as opposed to the interpretation that we kind of project onto our environment right. um, instinctually. Um, and so really developing that pause is super important. Now, I'll be honest with you. This isn't like a, hey, I've shared now. You need to take a breath and now you can just easily do it. Uh, yeah. By no means is that it. And I think it's a process. One, kind of this growth process, I think, looks like developing awareness of what these patterns are. Mm-hmm. So that's like, okay, what are internally some of the things that I default to? What are some of these negative patterns that I fall into and the things I struggle with? And as I become overall more aware of what those are, um, it opens up possibility for me to begin to notice when those things are showing up. Mm. And a lot of times with people I'm working with, and even for myself, what I find is when you're beginning to kind of work towards these change, I don't notice it in the moment. Mm. It's a day later, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's maybe two or three days later. And I look back and I'm like, oh, man, I yeah, I totally missed it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I totally reacted out of these patterns as opposed to really what's truly connected to myself and what I truly value and want. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was more just kind of what came out of me in the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the more that we kind of have this this awareness, coupled with a very important piece too, um, and this is kind of, I think, taking a page out of the mindfulness playbook, with some of the self-compassion and curiosity, we can kind of recognize that these patterns have actually helped us grow, that we've needed kind of some of these patterns, even some of the negative aspects, they've helped us in some way. Mm. If we can recognize that and offer some compassion to ourselves, it again, it opens up the possibility to not be defined by that. So it's Mm. kind of overall awareness of our patterns and then kind of the self-compassion. And the next thing is kind of to your point, it's being able to catch ourselves in the act. And that's a a progression. I see... Mm. (laughs) It's three, it's three or four days, and then it's one day, and then maybe it's like eight to, eight to ten hours later, then it's like three or four, then it's an hour, and then it's like being able to, in real time, being able to catch ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And being able to kind of reroute um, our responses. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I can't stress enough, this is really difficult work. This is not something that is just, you know, you snap your fingers and do. Yeah. But it is so worth it when it allows you to be present to yourself and the people around you. I mean, you're breaking psychological patterns formed <laughs> over maybe even decades by the time somebody has encountered the Enneagram, right? Exactly. It's those neural pathways, right? Like these yeah. are so ingrained, right? Mm. Um, and we're trying to re, re, uh, rewrite those. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating stuff, man. And uh, the mindfulness piece sounds really, really pertinent. It's it, that progression, that progression, like we practice a lot of mindfulness. One of the things I always struggle with with mindfulness is, okay, so what... And I know it's kind of not the point of mindfulness, but my brain automatically goes here once I've been mindful and I'm noticing things. It's like, okay, so what do I do with this? (laughs) Um, What do I do with this newfound mindfulness knowledge, (laughs) right? And so, I mean, it it sounds like the Enneagram would be an excellent tool to sort of plug into that open space, especially if you're already practicing mindfulness on a daily basis or that's something you really try and stay attuned to. I don't know. Andrew, as a sort of resident mindfulness expert over here how's this stuff sitting with you yeah so i the way you describe that um it, it kind of makes me think a little bit about it. it's kind of like a bicep curl for the brain like it's almost like because it's repetition right so you're almost training like an untrained mind um just kind of stuck at the behest of your own impulses and drives over like you said decades of experience 
um, the way that we've got our attachment needs met or not met or uh, how trauma affects us, basically even kind of like how we were talking about earlier today, um, just uh, things that happened in the past that basically creates our personality but also um, you know affects our our where we're at presently. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also we can get overwhelmed and um, you know all the agenda and the expectations and all the social roles that we have and it, and it completely robs us of, of being in the present moment to, so you know therefore you know robbing us of you know just kind of having control. And, uh, you know, being able to pick up those little idiosyncrasies that sometimes negatively affect our relationships and our decisions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love the, like you said, the bicep analogy. And that's definitely something I kind of use a lot as well. It's like a muscle, right? Like this, it takes right. practice, right? Like mm-hmm. this isn't just something that you just kind of learn and then it changes everything. It's something you have to be intentional about, continue to be mindful of, kind of to your point. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's, that's spot on. Nice. Well, I... I'd love to ask this question, I'm sure, unless you have more to add to this, but, you know, there's nine types, right? Um, And like you said, these types aren't really meant to be restrictive or all purposely defining, I guess would be a good way of saying that. You know, could you walk us through the the types, Wes, like general overview of the nine, what what to maybe look for? And if you want to add something to, like, to make our listeners aware of how to actually hear what you're saying right now too if they're if they've never taken a test or talked to a professional about their type maybe you could give a brief little introduction as far as like how to take in the information that you're about to give about the types if they're wondering what they may be yeah definitely and i think i would want to just take a second too is because i definitely highlighted an important part of the enneagram kind of in general as far as us being aware of ourselves and being able to grow um but i would be at fault to not also mention this doesn't just help us individually and personally grow, but this is such an incredible tool in our relationships as oh, well. Yeah. Um, and and really what this is, it's developing understanding and empathy with the people in our lives. Mm. Um, because it's one thing when I can understand myself and what's going on and live out of that place. It's another when we're encountering people all the time. I don't know about you guys, but like there are people in my life, I won't name names, right? <laughs> but who drive me up a wall, right? Yeah, there are certain things they do, certain things they say. Okay, it's coming, right? <laughs> But they do. Like, they grate on us. Yeah. And and a lot of times it can be hard for us to figure out what exactly is going on. What is this? And yeah. and really what, how I see the Enneagram is is it can begin to show us a little bit of, like, what's actually going on, right? Mm-hmm. What are maybe some of the fears and insecurities underneath this behavior that can help us have a little bit more empathy? Now, is this going to maybe change how they respond or even maybe our own kind of gears being grinded by the, these people? Maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. But if we can have an understanding, it can allow us to be able to, in the moment, maybe respond a little bit differently. Yeah. There's no way we can control anyone or their own responses or even how their reactions. But I often find, I mean, this happens all the time, right? The way we respond to people a lot of times can perpetuate certain responses Uh, it can perpetuate certain behaviors or things that maybe don't sit well with us yes but if we can again zoom out and see oh maybe i'm actually doing this thing or 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 saying this thing that's pushing a button for them Mm -hmm. and maybe if i just kind of tweak this a bit 
maybe I'm going to get a completely different reaction yeah. that could actually open up possibilities for a new type of relationship. Sure. And that's just something that is so valuable in the workplace. Mm -hmm. That's something that's valuable at home and our families and with our friendships and the community. Like that piece right there of that understanding and being able to move in with empathy um, is something that Enneagram can totally shed light on um, that opens up so much. Hmm. Uh, it, in that circumstance, right, you have the coworker who's grating on your nerves. Hopefully, that's not happening in our workplace. But if it is, <laughs> no, we, no, we're we good. We're talk good. About it. But I, I, uh, if you have that coworker who's sort of grating on the nerves, do you? I mean, would they need to know their type? Is that something that you would need to know to know how to shift? Uh, how to approach them or how to be talking to them? Or, I mean, will your own knowledge of of what your type typically bends to enlighten you in that manner? Or is it better to, for your community as a whole to be using the tool or at least be familiar with it? Yeah, I think it, it's both, right? Okay. So if we're aware of ourselves and our own patterns, that's going to show us maybe maybe what are some of the things in us that, that are coming out that we don't necessarily realize mm -hmm. that is kind of impacting people negatively. So again, we can almost take ownership of some of the mess that we're showing, mm -hmm. maybe unintentionally or not even realizing it. Um, so that's the one fa facet of it. But then also knowing the Enneagram type of the other person is a, is a really important piece that can open up a lot. And, and even with some of the workshops that I do with, with teams, the first kind of, um, kind of a, a basic package that I offer is, is coming in and doing a workshop that it kind of dives into identifying the types of, of everybody in that space and helping them understand themselves and what's going on so you can have that understanding and empathy and then I typically kind of follow that up with another workshop that talks about, okay, how do we use this now? Mm -hmm. And we get into communication skills. We get into conflict management. Like, how can we actually practically learn how to communicate and address certain things knowing this valuable knowledge that we have? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it really is incredible. And, and just understanding all of this and, mm -hmm. and other people under the type is, is one thing. But having the practical tools as well can take this to, a, to another level. Oh. So I think... Uh, to your point, it really it can be both. Um, but if, if the other person knows their type and you and they for sure um, you know theirs as well, again, it can't open up so much. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and and I'm sure you're going to get into this, and I'm interested as how, how this plays out. But that whole health stress dynamic, right? It impacts um, how people enact their type, right? And so I'd, I'm definitely interested. I, you know, it, if it is a good time, jumping into the the types, what they bend to, what they lean to, maybe what they run away from, right? I, I know you have a bunch of awesome stuff to say on this, so man, unleash it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I, I'm going to kind of, we don't have like a ton of time, so I can't do a deep dive into each of these, so I'm going to kind of hit the highlights of this. But, I, you know, I do get a question a lot, how do you figure out your type? And so I just want to kind of put some tips out there to kind of keep in mind as you're listening to this, but also as you kind of take this further on, whether you're you know, reading, um, listening to podcasts, um, going to workshops, whatever it is, just kind of keep these things in mind when you're trying to figure out your type. And the first thing is, it's okay if you don't know right away. If you don't know what type you are at the end of this podcast, that's mm -hmm. totally okay. Um, it's a process and, and th that that's an okay piece. Mm -hmm. uh, other thing I want to highlight is that tests can be helpful. Um, they really can be helpful to kind of put you in the right direction of like maybe these potential types are what could resonate most with me, but they are not definitive. No test is going to tell you for sure what you are. Um, and so keeping that in mind is going to be really helpful. As well as no one uh, can tell you 100% what type you are either, right? Mm -hmm. So even, even experts can give you advice. They can give you valuable feedback on like trying to identify what type you are. But at the end of the day, 
this has to be your own journey and trying to figure out what that is because it's, it's you taking ownership of that. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we have to take ownership of ourselves, of our own understanding and awareness, and also the way that we're going to react and respond to the people around us. Yeah, I mean, I, I Wes actually helped me figure out my type, right? We took a test first, and mm-hmm. it was like, well, <laughs> question mark, right? <laughs> there were a couple we were considering. We kind of landed, I think, originally on a four, mm-hmm. I think is yeah, what yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah, that's one that we had talked about. And yeah. so I was reading through it, and uh, I was like, man, there's a lot of this that I'm not connecting with. And Wes was just like, man, you know what? Like, the test is useful, but also my results came back. I think on a really oddly even playing yeah, field, it's like pretty much yeah. almost across the board. Yeah, so I think I think it was you or Andrew who lent me the the wisdom of the Enneagram book. The anxious is it the ancient wisdom of the Enneagram? Uh, book? The wisdom of the Enneagram, just the wisdom of yep. the Enneagram book. And I was reading through that and hit the hit the seven, you know. Um, and I read it and just started laughing. Right, it just it connected. It connected so much with me, but I, I think I'm a perfect example of what you just said, which yeah. is like a test was helpful, mm-hmm. but um, after some conversations with you and then reading through the book, it became a little more obvious to me what, you know, what, what type I associated with, right? Yes. Honestly, I feel like what you just said is almost the, <laughs> there isn't a model for figuring out your type. But I think what you just highlighted is is a way a lot of people do it, right? Mm. They maybe take a test, they get kind of an introduction, but then they have to dig in themselves. They have to put in some of the time and, and the work to kind of read through or to listen and, and trying to figure it out, as well as observing themselves, right? Because yeah. um, yeah. that's an important piece. You can learn all about the Enneagram, but if you're not paying attention to yourself and how these things are showing up, this isn't going to be helpful, right? Mm. It can be cool and you know, this, I feel like parts of the Enneagram are becoming almost kind of pop psychology, but for this to be a true tool for, for transformation growth, um, this has to be something that is turning our kind of our sights inward that allows us to kind of notice these things. Um, so really doing the digging work afterwards, that, that's a, a key component of this. And, mm. and to, to kind of what I'm going to talk about kind of today, this isn't anything final, right? Like go on beyond this and, mm. and, and try to learn more and try to sort these things out. So, yeah. Nice, man. Well, uh, yeah, so... Fill us in on a one. Yeah, for sure. So there's different names um, for each of these types. And so I'm going to kind of, you know, use one kind of label or name for it. Um, and for type one, that's the reformer. And so kind of the how I'm going to go through these is highlight one, the core fear. Every type has a kind of a core fear that's mm-hmm. um, embedded in them. Um, and then what happens is they develop a coping belief. They mm-hmm. develop this kind of belief that if I do this, I'm going to be okay. Or if I do this, things are going to be, they're going to be all right. And so we find for the type one that the core fear is being ultimately bad or corrupt. Um, and so they then develop a coping belief that to be good, I must do things the right way. And that's oh. kind of air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is actually a misconception for, for ones that I'll kind of, I guess, get to. But ones are very principled. They're conscientious. They are um, very typically upstanding characters. It's very important for them to, again, do things the right way. They have mm-hmm. a very high standard within themselves um, that they are kind of shooting towards and want to to live into. And for them, quality is everything. It's about the things need to be quality and done rightly. It's mm-hmm. no cutting corners, no kind of just trying to get by. I need to make sure I'm doing it just as it needs to be. Um, so kind of with this, um, as you can imagine, if there's such a strong ethic of, of making sure they're doing things the right way, at times they can be a little hard on themselves, mm-hmm. right? This is something that, 
is so important to them. And when they feel like they're not living up to their own standard, their own kind of view of what is right and, and how it should be done, they can be harsh on themselves. Oh. Uh, but not only that, at times then it, it can also get projected out into the world around them. So it can be one of those things of like, oh, like why can't people just do what they're supposed to do, right? right. Like why can't they just live up to, to whatever it is, the responsibilities they have, whatever it is. It's almost kind of righteous indignation. Um, yes. That's something that can show up pretty common um, for ones, this kind of frustration of the world around them not being as it should be. Um, these ones, you know, they really can be such incredible teachers because of their ability to kind of truly feel the rightness and communicate that. Um, and wise and moral, those are things that a lot of times come up. We do find that every type um, kind of has a vice. They have um, something that is more of a struggle. This kind of comes from the history. We find um, that there is a, uh, a Vagrius Ponticus. He was a Christian uh, monastic. He uh, kind of, in his writings, he talks about um, the, this idea of there being vices, there, this idea of there being these struggles that every person has. Um, and he kind of sketches out in his writings, eight to ten, depending on what you're reading of his. And he kind of theorizes that we have all of these, but there, maybe there's one that we identify with more than the rest. Mm. And so kind of taking this idea, there's almost you know eight to ten types of people. And kind of the idea of there being personality types, kind of, you can trace it back to kind of this idea that he kind of sketched. Um, and then we see the seven deadly sins and the, kind of the, the Christian tradition is kind of birthed out of that. So when we look at vices, every type has a, a vice per se. And so for the one, we find that that vice is anger. Um, and this is typically something that for ones is kind of like, a, oh, okay, um, maybe I, I can maybe see this. It, it doesn't maybe immediately resonate, but we find that for ones, it's really a repressed anger. It's a controlled anger. Because we find that this anger is, is, again, deep down at the injustice in the world. It's deep down at this anger at the world not being as it should be. And it almost propels them forward to doing and living their life in a way that is matching the quality that they believe it should be. Sure. And so there's this anger that's deep down. But when we kind of take a look at this this coping belief to do to be good, I must do things the right way, we find that Anger at times, when it comes up and it's just kind of let loose, at times it can be scary, right? Mm -hmm. It can cause us to do and react in ways that hurt the people around us or, or react in ways that don't reflect good on, on us as people. And so for ones, they almost kind of internally, they recognize this. And so the way they deal with this anger is I'm going to control this, right? Ah, I'm yeah. not going to let this come out. I'm just going to kind of sit on it. And we actually find a lot of ones, they don't get angry, no, they get frustrated. <laughs> they get irritated. <laughs> anger? No, no, no. I don't get angry. That, that's kind of something that maybe ones can kind of talk about. Yeah. Uh, because, again, they see the threat that, that anger could pose. Or at least sure. that's how they perceive it. Sure. And so for the one, the vice is kind of this anger. But mm. at their healthiest, ones are people who are able to kind of see what the world should be and move towards really reforming it in a way that makes it so much better and truer to, um, to, yeah, to this kind of perfection that they seek. Gotcha. Yeah. Nice, man. Well, and, and before you scoot on through the other ones, I won't interrupt you. You feel free to just flow right through them. Right. And, um, I, 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 the way I understand the Enneagram is there's sort of a, almost like a health scale of sorts, right? So when you're stressed, you go in one direction. When you're healthy, am I using the right... If I'm not using the right words, please correct it after I'm done speaking. But like, I, I understand it as, 
you know, certain thought patterns and behaviors and ways of seeing the world around you start to emerge, the more stressed and anxious you become, but then the, the healthier and less stressed you become, those things start to shift as well in the other direction. Do I understand that right? As you're moving through these types, maybe that's a good framework for people to understand. Yeah. So you're, you're actually hitting on something that's actually become a, I don't know if controversial is the right word, yeah. but excuse me, there is a, maybe a shifting in the Enneagram community. So if, for those of you who are familiar with the Enneagram and the Enneagram symbol itself, you'll see that there's these lines that kind of go from number to number. And it sounds like kind of what you're talking about is mm-hmm. every type has a connection via these lines to two other types. Oh, and, and a lot of right. Enneagram kind of literature, we found it talked about like if you're in stress, you'll move towards this other number and kind of right. temporarily take on some of these uh, motivations or kind of drives or characteristics um, for a time, and then you always kind of come back home per se mm-hmm. to your to your main type. Right. And then they've described it. You know, there's another number you're connected to that when you're kind of more relaxed and more kind of at ease, or you're more healthy, you move towards that number and take on some of the positive characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, we're finding a shift though um, that's kind of I feel like a much more kind of holistic approach, and really how the teachers now and the, the people who are, are really kind of diving into the enneagram are talking about it is. There's two lines of these two types, and depending on where you're at overall, kind of if we're talking about health, mm-hmm. um, you take on the positives and negatives of both. So, for example, let's just uh, say you are a nine, gotcha. and there is this connection to type three and type six. If you're in an unhealthy place overall in your life, guess what? <laughs> take on all three. You're, yes, exactly. <laughs> you're going to be showing up some of the unhealthy qualities of the three and you're going to show up some of the unhealthy qualities of the six. Like It's yeah. just going to kind of happen yes. because a lot of times these movements to these numbers are things that unconsciously we just kind of do and we take on some of these characteristics before gotcha. kind of coming back. Okay. On the opposite end though, we find that if you're in a more healthy and aware place, these numbers are kind of resource points for us. We can kind of almost intentionally lean into those numbers and take on some of those good characteristics, hmm. some of the strengths and, and um, good qualities that show up for both of those. Huh. Um, I think in the way that it's kind of been talked about in the past, what can tend to happen is people feel like, well, there's this one number that's good that I want to move towards, right. and there's this one number that's like bad that I want to stay away from. Sure. and. That's it's kind of I guess it's it's helpful because it's like ooh like I, there's a bad one and a good one and I just right. want to stay away but I think it's it's just way more complex than that yeah and uh, I think the more you dive in the more you begin to to see those layers oh. so yeah yeah I could definitely see that personally I think the seven what is it a one and a five I think is yes. the sevens and so yeah that's a really interesting way to paint that because I feel like that. When I'm when I'm healthy, I feel like I embody characteristics of health from both of those numbers, actually, because sometimes I'll feel really healthy and kind of snap into a one. And I'm like, wait, am I actually am I actually stressed? <laughs> like, <laughs> am I misjudging this right now? Is my inner seven running away from some pain that I'm yes. not even aware of? But anyway, yeah, that's so that's that's super helpful. So, yeah, man, w- walk us through the rest of the through the rest of the types. That'd be super helpful. Yeah, sure thing. So moving on, we're going to go to type two, and this is uh, kind of the name we're going to use for this is the helper. Um, and they have a core fear of being unloved or unwanted, and then they develop a coping belief that to be loved, you must give to others. So twos are compassionate. They are warm-hearted. They are 
very relationship oriented and they care so much about the people in their lives and the relationships around them. And they devote a lot of time towards really caring for these needs. And we find that there is just an attunement they have to the needs of those around them. They can just kind of almost sense like, ooh, okay, maybe this is what's needed right here. And they're going to move in and meet that need. Mm -hmm. Um, It's such a gift to the people people around them. We do find, though, that with this kind of gift and this kind of uh, focus on other people, um, that over time this can begin to really wear the two out. Mm -hmm. They're spending so much of their time, so much of their effort being focused on others that – um, at the end of the day, feelings of, of resentment maybe can build when they look around and they're like, well, why isn't anyone taking care of me? Mm-hmm. And this is not something that's really easy for, for twos to do, which is kind of maybe ask for help or tell people what they need um, because there is this kind of identity in I'm, I'm the one who's helping. And so mm-hmm. it can be a real struggle as their kind of um, self-care can be something really hard for twos to really um, begin to embody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is this kind of like uh, very warm-hearted, sensitive um, people who just want to kind of care for the people around them. Hmm. We do find, if we're looking at kind of the vice for this type and what kind of shows up and can be a struggle for them, we find the vice is pride. Hmm. Um, and this can show up in a couple ways. One kind of already how I've kind of highlighted is this almost like, well, I'm the one who helps, and so I don't I don't need any help. I'm fine. I'm okay. Kind of hmm. this kind of pride in their own, um, yeah, not needing anything from other people. Um, which when you dig deeper, you realize that they are desperately wanting people to help. It's just hard for them to communicate that. Um, the other piece to this pride too is almost a pride in their own goodness, right? Mm. Man, I help, I give to all these people, almost kind of the sense of pride in their own goodness is another way this kind of pride can show up. But again, at their healthiest twos really do embody this kind of selfless service that really wants to, to carry the load and to really serve and, and love people well. And, these warm-hearted people that really focus on building relationships with other people. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. That's good stuff. Man. I, I had, um, that, that part about twos actually wanting help. I feel like that's a really important part. If you are a two out there to hear, right. Is like the desire for help is actually in you. It might be good to pay attention. So your relationships could be a little more reciprocal, right? Yeah. That mm. would be, that would yes. be a good thing. <laughs> no, for sure. That's that's spot on. And so, I mean, we talk about a lot of these. These are the natural kind of reactions that come up. Yeah. So the, the initial for the two, the initial reaction that might come up is like, no, I'm fine. I can't. I can't share this thing. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. That's kind of, if we're thinking about these default reactions, that's a default kind of reaction that two has. And what we would want to do, like you said, is let's stay present to that. Yeah. Let's stay present to that impulse and be like, wait a minute. Like, is that actually true, right? Is mm-hmm. that, do I actually really not need or want any help? Like, mm-hmm. can I can I take a risk and maybe and ask for what I need? Those are some of the questions that the two can really begin to kind of meditate on and huh. it can open up so much. Nice. Nice. So what about threes, man? Yeah, for the three. Yeah, the achiever, huh? <laughs> yes. So for threes, the achiever. Um, for this type, we find there's a core fear of being a failure or not good enough. And they then have a coping belief that to have value, you must be constantly doing and achieving. So we find for threes, these are typically um, goal-oriented, efficient, energetic, always kind of pushing towards um, some type of task or goal that they've kind of set out. A lot of times they um, are hard workers that really kind of focus in on what they're trying to work towards. And a lot of times they really work hard to, to make those things happen. Um, we find that with this type, there also can be an image consciousness um, of the perceptions of other people. And, and so for them, um, there is this desire to kind of at times 
without realizing it, maybe kind of shift presentation a bit. Kind of, I'm going to show maybe this good side and maybe not kind of show these other things mm -hmm. because they're wanting to get a good response from the people around them. This isn't something they're consciously doing, but for, for the three, there is this, this desire to bring value and to, to make a good impression on the people around them, which allows them to do and achieve so much but can at times make them become disconnected from themselves. Mm. When you peel back the doing, when you peel back all the stuff that they're pushing towards, who who are they mm. outside of the doing and the striving? Um, and that can be something that threes at times can become disconnected from and not even know, mm. which then leads us to the vice for this type, and it's deceit. Um, mm. And what I really want to highlight with this deceit is, I think at a more at the most basic level, this deceit is a self deceit. It's a deceiving themselves that they are what they do, that they are the image that they project onto the world and that there, that there isn't anything other than that. Yeah, that's and, I was actually wondering that because like if you're really work oriented, you're achieving, you're doing all of these things, but you're also shifting your presentation, not really in touch with the core self, you're going to associate everything you do with who you are, right? It's like you become your actions and... There's like no core inner working or firing going on there, right? Yes. No, that's exactly it. It then becomes a, almost a slave to the doing, right? Hmm. I have to continue to do. I have to continue to perform or achieve in order for me to have worth or value. Oh, that's kind of the message that's in, internalized, right? To have value, you must be constantly doing and achieving. If you're not doing that, what's left? Oh. And so we find the self-deceit kind of takes them out of touch with who they are and their own internal core value. Yes. Regardless of whether any type three is doing or achieving, there is value there. Mm. Um, and so really the self-deceit is, is them not realizing that. Um, and at times it also can be um, deceiving of others as well. Mm. If there is a need to impress, if there is a need to achieve, there can be you know tweaks and modifications and exaggerations that kind of make a good impression. And so for the three, what they have to really begin to do is recognize that, wait a minute, there is that value internal. Mm -hmm. Let me take time to maybe not engage so much in the doing, and, and let me let me take time to really get in touch with with who who I am, right? Like mm -hmm. what I'm actually feeling, what mm -hmm. I'm actually want, like those things, as opposed to this kind of assembly line of production. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of the the vice that shows up for them. But at their healthiest, they are getting in touch with their heart. They are yeah. getting in touch with their feelings and what's going on. They're living from this authentic place. That allows them to stay connected while also still living into this, this achieving and, and trying to bring forth a value to the people around them. The value is so important for, for threes uh, because they want that value to be given to other people and, and lived into in a great way. And in their healthy place, they're doing that while also being authentic to themselves. Mm. That's a little bit of kind of about the type three. Yeah, to be authentic and that high of a performer, I mean, I could imagine a healthy three is putting out some, some really quality quality material whether that's in the workplace or in relationships i mean that that's a heck of a combination like almost like the healthy healthy achiever could be like uh what is it the mindful achiever or the in touch or authentic achiever right uh, yeah. yeah but anyway okay yeah. good stuff wes what what about four i think uh the individualist yeah. yes you're, you're yeah. nailing them so type for the individualist there's a core fear of being ultimately deficient flawed or abandoned which then leads to this kind of coping belief that to have worth, you must find deep connection or what's missing. So we find with type fours, these people are intuitive. They are emotionally deep. They feel things very deeply and they have an eye for the beauty 
around them. They're able to kind of see like kind of what's missing and maybe what could be added that would bring forth beauty and life. And they really want to get to the depths of things. They want to find depth and connection to themselves, but also to other people and to, to what they're engaging in in life. This kind of is something that wells up in them and they want to move towards in a way. And they bring this authenticity of themselves um, and trying to develop that also in the, the world around them. Um, we find with them, they're also with this kind of authenticity and a search for what's missing though, there can almost be this, this melancholy. There can be this kind of feeling of like, uh, a sweet sadness in a sense, because we find with this type, there's also typically a feeling of longing, a feeling of like, Hmm. Oh, I I just, there's something that's missing that if I could just figure out or find what that is, I feel like I would be okay. I feel Mm -hmm. like I would be complete. Um, which then kind of leads us a little bit to what the vice is for this type and that's envy. And so really what this envy looks like is this longing. It's this feeling of what I have or who I am right now. There's something missing and it's out there somewhere. And if I could just find what it is, right. Or if I could just get back to what I had, Or if I could just have that quality, or if I could just have that, why is it so easy for everyone else? Why can't that be my experience? Mm -hmm. These are kind of sentiments that can kind of come up for the four that that disconnects them from themselves. Mm -hmm. And and the fact that even in the ordinary, even in the mundane day-to-day, there is, there's wholeness. And there is an ability to be, to have value and to have worth and that there isn't anything missing. Mm-hmm. There isn't something outside of themselves that if they can just kind of find that it's going to be okay and this can drive them to con- constantly seeking for something else. But when a, when a four is becoming aware of this this envy and this longing, they're able in a healthy way embody this in a way that gets them connected to themselves and allows the the waves of emotion that come up for this type to, to come up and to pass. Mm. That's really what we find with fours is they feel things so deeply and intensely. And I want to take a pause and say there can be a misconception with fours that fours are these people who are just like feeling all over the place, right? They're just like (laughs) spilling their feelings everywhere. That some fours, yes, there are tons of fours though, who everything I'm talking about right now is an internal state. It's something that's happening inside of them that you would not know from the outside. And so I can't stress that enough because I know plenty of people who, who maybe are fours who just feel like, oh, a lot of these descriptions or a lot of the ways that people describe it, that's not me because I don't let these things out. Right. Um, but really when they're able to kind of to live into this in a healthy way, they're able to realize that there's not something special or great out there that I need to seek after. Even in the mundane and the ordinary and the day-to-day, there is an ability to be content mm. and to be whole and things to be okay. Yeah. Um, and so at their healthiest, they're able to live authentically out of that place out of their kind of true selves as opposed to the waves of the emotion and bring so much depth and beauty to the people around them. Wow. Yeah. I'm so glad that you hit on the the positive aspects of the four. Like it seems like a lot of the literature is kind of hard on the four, right? Or at least hard to read, right? It's like, oh, like it talks a lot about victimhood or being a victim or the unfairness and like those types of things that emerge. But I think it's really good that you decided to be even keel with that right present present the downside of it but also i know fours who are attuned and don't slide into that victimhood mentality very frequently uh and if they do they're kind of noticing that stuff and trying to move out of it so i don't know i've i've worked with people in therapy who are like 
and I typed four on the Enneagram and I'm like the worst person ever. I'm like, no, 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 like, no, it's okay. Like, I know it sounds so bad, but you know, uh, but it's not, it's maybe, it's maybe not as bad as the language makes it yeah. sound. Right. So it's good to hear you balance that a bit. With. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, I think there are a few types that I think a lot of times can get stereotyped in a way that makes it feel like, Oh, there's all these negative and bad qualities. Right. And, from my kind of work with the Enneagram and even my training, I'm trained in the narrative Enneagram, which focuses on story, focuses on how do these things showing up like in the stories and the lives of people. I've met so many fours who I hear their stories or I hear what's going on internally for them. And you see this depth and beauty and, and, and also you see it not just for the four, but for all the types. And I know yeah. for me, my view and perception of each of these types hearing the stories of people has made me recognize like so much of the gifts and the beauty that each of them have and have to offer. And if anything, what I want to do is to really put that on display and for everybody, whatever type you are, for you to feel kind of that being seen and known in a way um, that highlights these strengths and gifts you have to offer while also recognizing, but there are these struggles, yes. right? This kind of yes. balanced view, like we don't want to, you know, negate that there are things that we all struggle with, right? Mm-hmm. But those aren't the things that define us. There are these kind of like really... Um, true gifts that we have to offer. And I really want to kind of highlight those. So yeah, that, that's an intentional thing. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad you did that. And um, super interested to hear about the five, right? Like I, that's, that's one of the ones that I'll bend to at times. And I'm always intrigued by my own behavior and actions and thought patterns when I'm there, but I'd love, I'm, I'm pumped to hear you talk about the five um is it the i'm gonna see if i can go five for five let's, let's see you ready investigator yes you got oh. it yes hey <laughs> it's reading i know huh? <laughs> he did his homework that's what it was right? yeah, it's like those uh fish oils are helping the old brain <laughs> retain stuff it's actually working <laughs> oh. so the type five the investigator um we find that the core fear for this type is being incompetent and intruded upon um, and then they have a coping belief that to survive, you must conserve yourself and gather knowledge. So we find with the, the type five, they are perceptive and curious, insightful, objective. These are people who kind of take the world in, kind of observe everything, and, and they really want to kind of take it all in and, and almost kind of mine it. They, they, they don't want to kind of, they're not reactive people. They're not people who are kind of... Um, Hot and cold, they're people who are going to be very thoughtful and mindful with any decisions that they make, and mm-hmm. they're going to make sure that it matches up with kind of their own digging and trying to figure out what's going on. Because we find this need to understand. We, we find this need to, you know, it's not okay for me to just know an answer. I need to know the why, right? I want to I figure out what's going on, the nuts and bolts of it. And this kind of drives them to, in, in a way. We find that because all of these things are so important to them, um, they live a lot of their life in their head, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of mental activity going on. And for them, mm-hmm. I've heard five describe kind of like finding an idea or finding something that they're really interested in. And they just do a deep dive and they yeah. will just like research and research and mine it and mine it. And there's just almost this this joyous part of them that comes alive and mm-hmm. this digging. Um, and it's really cool to hear them to, to hear them share that and, and see them kind of come alive in a way. Yeah. We, we find, though, with this, if you're living so much uh, life in your mind that um, it can be a little bit difficult to step out, right? And, mm-hmm. and so that's one of the, the things that can be a little bit more difficult for the five is to, to get out of their heads and to begin to, to take action, to take steps, to begin to share what's going on internally mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we also find that not only is this desire to gather knowledge and to understand, but there also is this feeling of, 
I have a limited supply. I have a limited supply of energy. I have a limited uh-huh. supply of time. I have a limited mm-hmm. supply of everything, kind of this almost scarcity mentality. And so for them, we find that the vice that shows up is avarice. And what mm-hmm. avarice is, is kind of this tendency to, I'm going to kind of hoard myself. I'm mm-hmm. not going to, I'm not going to be almost a stinginess with myself. I'm not going to be very free with my time or free with my energy. I'm going to be very close to the vest with my feelings or what's going on. Like I'm going to kind of keep this close because I feel like I have a limited supply and I can't spend it all at once. Mm. Right. And so the vice that shows up can cause them to kind of isolate at times and withdraw and not share as freely with Mm. other people. Um, And so this avarice can cause them to kind of withdraw from other people and, and from the world at large at times. Mm. Um, We find though that when they're moving into a healthy space, what they're able to do is take this vast knowledge and understanding that they've been able to move into and they're able to take action. They're able to step out. They're able to share themselves to recognize that there isn't necessarily a limited supply. Mm-hmm. They can give themselves and it will be okay and add so much value around them as they offer these insights and clarity into the world. Huh. So what was it? Avarist? Avarice. Avarice. I didn't like, know that word. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a new that's one. Avarice. Like, I wonder if Einstein would have, like, existed in avarice. Like, what, <laughs> what yes! would have happened, right? Obviously, I mean, he had to have some sort of five-ish sort of tendency, oh, for right? Sure. So, but I guess he, I mean, he, maybe he used a form of, because he was a playful guy, right? Like, mm-hmm. you see him in, inter- well, I don't know if, I don't even know if there's interviews. I feel like I've heard interviews, maybe, maybe there's recordings of him. I don't know. Or maybe I've just seen pictures with him sticking his tongue out. Like, That's true. <laughs> you know right? what I mean? Like, <laughs> maybe, on a bicycle. Yeah, there was some, maybe, some, I feel like I've, oh no, I've read, I've read recently some of Einstein's stuff and thought, my, he's like really playful with his language. So I wonder if maybe that was a tool he used to kind of punch through some of that possessiveness, right? Yes. So p- part of what's coming to mind as you're sharing, I didn't know that about him, but again, we're looking at the lines that the, the types have. So five has a connection to seven and a connection to eight. Um, and so when I hear that kind of playfulness coming out, what I think of is, is Einstein leaning into that seven, right? Uh, kind of yeah, moving yeah, to that yeah. place of like playfulness and being able to kind of share and, and the spontaneity and mm-hmm. kind of like living into that side. Like mm-hmm. when the five is in a healthy place living towards that, there is more of a freedom to uh, kind of share and to be comfortable and to be themselves. Makes sense. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a huh. great illustration. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm glad I placed that too because I, I don't think it was recording. It would have been in German. Bro. Yeah, it really would have. <laughs> yeah, so it was some translated writings. That's what it was. Um, and read his... Uh, read a biography i think a while back too but there was some a modern gosh my reading selection's a little tacky sometimes but i was reading a modern lit book and he had a (laughs) (laughs) there was an article from him and i just thought to myself wow he's like really playful in this you know super serious and then all of a sudden like comes up for this breath of air that just kind of grabs you and then pulls you back down into the depth mm-hmm. of what he's actually talking about. So he was a great philosopher too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he kind of dabbled in all of that stuff. Yeah. that And again, you're, you're speaking, I think the five, there's just an ability to understand and to delve mm-hmm. deep that when they're at a place that they're able to do that and then open themselves up and share that. Um, with the world around them like these can be the like the most brilliant people right mm-hmm. they can be your einsteins yeah. of the world and so such a gift um when they're able to live awarely right like okay yes. there's something here that i have and like mm-hmm. there's a fear of incompetence at times that can hold them back but if they can begin to realize no i have something to offer and i want to step forward and share that again it really does you know impact so many people nice man well let's uh let's move on to the six let's see yes the six the 
Loyalist. Yes, you got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The loyalist. <laughs> Who are you? Right like, now? <laughs> yeah, look at this. Did you drink? Josh had bulletproof coffee for lunch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I might have literally just ate the beans this morning. So, yeah, anyway. That's awesome. So, for the type six, the loyalist, we have a core fear of being helpless, lacking security and support, and then a coping belief that to be secure, you must always be on guard or alert. So for the sixes, um, sixes are conscientious, they're hardworking, they're loyal, they're the people that you can trust uh, just with anything. Like they're down to earth, they're grounded, um, kind of your, um, a lot of times they're referred to as almost your like, company man or woman. They're people mm-hmm. who are very loyal to their groups, they're loyal to maybe their job or to their um, family or to their friends or to their political orientation, whatever it is, like they are they're the people that you can count on to kind of come through for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're people who spend so much time trying to, to really make sure that they are living and acting in a way that is kind of aligning themselves with making sure that they're bringing security to themselves and to the people around them. Mm-hmm. We find that, again, that there's this coping loop to be secure. You must be always be on guard or alert. And so we find with this that there can be a little bit of anxiety, right? If there's always almost a fear of something going wrong, uh, of something bad happening, they're constantly scanning the horizon for what could go wrong. Um, and so with this, obviously, again, comes a little bit of, of anxiety. Yeah, sure. Um, but what it also does, too, is it provides them with an ability to be amazing troubleshooters, oh, right? Sure. You, you yeah. present a plan, you present something that's going to happen, they're going to be able to look at it and be like, okay, that could happen or this could happen and really help you think through. And a lot of times... When sixes are doing this, they're not trying to be, you know, pessimistic or negative. They're really trying to help because they want this, whatever is being presented to be good, right? Mm -hmm. And to be whole and to be safe because this safety and security is so important to them. And if they're loyal to you, they want that to be good for you as well. Yes. Yeah, that, I mean, I think, I I don't know Leah's type. Leah's a counselor at the office. I don't know Leah's type specifically and I wouldn't try and type her but that's something that she's actually been for our practice at numerous times like the the sort of have you considered this have you considered this and have you considered this and i know that leah's been an incredibly loyal friend to me and also an incredibly loyal co-worker i think she balances it pretty well most of the time so i yeah i totally just immediately thought of her right yeah and we've actually talked and the the type six is what resonates with her most and so i really feel like she does such a great job of really embodying so much of this right Yeah. And, and again, the way it adds so much like value, you know, this person has your back, you know, that they're going to be thinking through and really trying to make sure that things are taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. We find with this, obviously, these gifts that they have to offer, there is, there is a vice. And what that vice is, is fear. Huh. And this is, a, again, a fear of what could happen. Fear of the unknown, fear mm-hmm. of all the possibilities. And so what can happen when this fear is kind of um, able to run freely in them is it can keep them from being able to be present. Sure. Now, each of the types has trouble with being present, right? Because they can get caught up in the default reactions and not present themselves. But for the six, what this looks like is they're so focused on the possibilities, so focused on the future and securing that they're not even able to enjoy the present, right? Mm-hmm. They're not able to be able to enjoy a nice evening because of maybe the the things that could go wrong that they need sure. to secure against. And so this fear can can almost hold them captive at times uh. and not allow them to kind of live in a way that, that is more free. And I do want to highlight something that um, can show up with this fear. So the fear is the vice. Um, six is a lot of times... Um, can be harder to kind of type because we find that this fear also it, there's a place within this fear that it shows up as self-doubt for uh, the sixth 
Mm-hmm. And so what can be a very common occurrence for a type six is to be like, okay, I thought through this, this is, okay, this is it. This is what we're going to do. We got it. We're good. And then there's this moment of crisis that's like, but what about this? Right. Mm-hmm. And then they begin to kind of like toil with this and then mm-hmm. they can almost be internally back and forth because there's this kind of fear of what if I, what if I make the wrong decision? Right. Mm-hmm. What if something bad happens? And so they can look to their authorities to kind of like really offer guidance and kind of security for yeah. them yeah. because at times it's harder for them to know what that is for them. Sure. And so that fear, again, can 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 show up as that self-doubt. Gotcha. But when they're living in a healthy space, they're able to recognize and trust their own judgment because so many sixes I know, they're able – they have such a solid foundation when they're in a, in a, a healthy place where they're able to be rock-solid supports that people turn to and they trust because they know that they're going to make a good decision that's good for everyone in the whole. They're not self-seeking and bringing things on. And, and when they're able to get a glimpse of, of that goodness inside of them and be able to trust that, they're able to live out of that in such a way that inspires so much confidence mm-hmm. and like good in the people around them. And so really when the, the six is limited, this, this loyalist can really move forward in, in a way that brings value to all. Right on, man. Well, I- Wes, I think this is a good spot to take a break. Um, so we're going to hit pause on the recording, take a little break, grab some more water. I'm out of it. You're out of it. Andrew's been out of it. Um, <laughs> so That's why I'm not talking so much. I'm drinking all this water. Yeah, we're going to take a we're going to take a breather. We'll be we'll be right back to talk about my personal favorite, uh, the seven, the enthusiast. I know that one. Um, and. I'm pumped to hear what you have to say, and uh, I hopefully learn a little something about myself. So we'll be right back with you guys. <laughs> All right, and we're back, folks. <laughs> uh, sorry for the brief intermission there. I promise we took full advantage of it and used it appropriately. Uh, so, Wes, fill us in on the enthusiast. Yes, type 7, the enthusiast. So we have a core fear of being trapped in pain and restricted. Mm. And then a coping belief. <laughs> to be happy, you must have options and not be restricted. Mm-hmm. So, so we have, with type 7, we find that they are optimistic. Come on. Enthusiastic. Yes. Energetic. <laughs> quick-minded. These are people, these are big idea people. These are people who, they see the world and they see it as almost like the world is their oyster. They're, they're, they're. Yeah, that's the word, right? Yeah. yeah. And they just want to, to live it to the fullest. They want to experience everything kind of the world has. And so they're people who are a lot of times are always on the go. There's always something that's kind of captures their attention that they're trying to move towards. <laughs> um, and we find with them as well that there's a lot of mental activity going on. There's a lot of, in their mind. It's, it's very busy and they're able to kind of combine strands of different streams and and form kind of a fluid picture mm-hmm. um, and they want to to go and kind of enjoy life and all that it has and they also want to bring people with them right to, to kind of to share in in all that life has yeah um, and so these are things that are very important to them um, they're people um, as well with this so we kind of look at this you know coping belief to be you must have options and not be restricted because having you know seeing the world through this lens seeing it as as something that they want to kind of explore and to live into being restricted or having limited options feels very threatening to them don't take away my freedom don't don't take away my ability to kind of uh do what i want to do and that can be something that's very threatening to them Mm -hmm. um which then leads us to part of what they want to avoid 
which is this pain, right? This pain and restriction and options. Options for for a type seven is something that they love, that they they thrive off of. I want to kind of have different options and be able to choose what I want to do and how I want to kind of go about it. Sure. And when you begin to limit these, it feels like, okay, something bad is about to happen. And so we find uh, with this type, when we get to the vice, that the vice is gluttony. Um, and this is not how we typically think about gluttony as far as food, um, although it can be that at times. It's more of a gluttony of, I want all the good in life. Yeah. Give me all the good, all the, the best of everything and the options and experience mm-hmm. everything. But let's let's maybe hold off on the bad. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't I don't want I don't really want the bad. I don't want mm-hmm. limitation. I don't want pain or, or suffering or anything. And obviously we all have a little bit of this in us, but for the seven, this is kind of something they feel very um, innately and it's kind of almost instinctual to to move away from in mm-hmm. some way. And while and why these options are so important to them. Um, and we find kind of what's what can be ironic at times for for the type seven um, is that while they want to experience life to the fullest, there is a part of life that they're avoiding. Right? There's yeah. a part of re- life and reality um, which is this kind of painful side that they want to get away from. And we can see reframing and rationalizing to kind of get away from a kind of a method they use to kind of stay away. But they're still missing out on on the beauty and the gifts that this part of life has to bring. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they're moving into a healthy space, they're able to acknowledge this. They're able to see that, okay, this is a part of life and I don't have to to get away from it. And instead I can be present to it, be present to what is, is being birthed in, in the death, what's being birthed in the, the painful experiences um, and the way that, that kind of impacts their life moving forward. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of a little bit of, of the type seven. Sure. I have so many, th- all the things to say about that, right? I just got to relate to so many of those. Um, we'll kind of save it for our experiential part, but I will speak to this this aspect of suffering that you're talking about and probably talk about it again, right? I feel like that's been a personal journey uh, that has had its peaks and valleys as far as me confronting suffering. Right? But I would say in the last few years particularly, I've really, really moved into understanding that suffering is something that is universal and actually one of the greatest connecting strands of history and present day and so to to accept and be a part of suffering is actually to accept humanity and be a part of it right and so again i have a lot i could a lot i could say on that and a lot of people that i could attribute that sort of growth to as well that was not birthed within me but of course that pushed me towards existential psychology too right which sort of immersed in and practice on a regular basis with my clients even these four fundamental fears that we all avoid you know isolation death and all those fun things you know um and i mean fun as in seven fun i was gonna say right things you want to avoid right but you've almost been like pushed into and see so much of the value and depth of those things sure but yeah well that's a great one uh, Andrew, as a, as a friend of mine, is there anything you want to, <laughs> you want to add to that? I mean, that's yeah. pretty much spot on. <laughs> um, yeah, that's wild. See, I think that's why Julie and I actually, she was laying in bed with me. We were, we were, we were both reading and I, I just handed her the book and I was like, Hey, just read these couple of paragraphs. She just started dying laughing, right? She's like, Oh my God, like this person must've been married to you at some point. In time. <laughs> but anyway, well, cool. Well, I, that's a great overview of that. And, um, yeah, why don't we jump to eight, which I can't remember for the life of me. No, um, 
Uh, well, let me think. It's the really, it's like the, the overlord in the workplace. It's the... The personality. Yeah, that... Um, you're going to have to give it to me. Here bro. it is. Type 8, the challenge. Ah, yes. <laughs> so for type 8, we find that there's a core fear of being powerless or controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a coping belief that to protect yourself... You must be strong and in control. Mm-hmm. So for type eight, we find that these are kind of the assertive, the um, kind of powerful types that these are the people who just kind of come in and they mean business, right? They can charge ahead. They can make things happen and they want to kind of challenge um, the world around them. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a kind of a big kind of powerful energy that they want to bring to it. And they're able to honestly do and overcome in ways that a lot of people just can't because there is just this drive like internally in them and we find with them that there's a strong sense of justice and they want things to be just and fair and they're typically uh, looking out for the underdog they want to kind of stand up for them in a way and be protective of their people um but we can find at times though that this kind of need for uh, being powerful and pushing ahead underneath it can be this kind of fear of of being controlled mm. and so kind of how type eight can a lot of times feel um feel is you know, instead of me being controlled and living out of that, I'll just take control, right? Mm. Well, if I'm in control, nothing sure. bad can happen. And so this can be a temptation that can show up for this type to kind of take control of situations and, and make it be what they want it to be. And really, it's kind of this protective factor for them. Um, and so what this kind of leads to is the vice for this type, which is lust. Mm-hmm. And again, not how we typically think of it as far as sexually, but really more of a lust for intensity um, and at times for control. Um, and what this looks like is like there is just a deep kind of need in the in the type eight for for intensity for things to push against for like something that they're kind of championing championing and if they are living into that they almost feel like I need to be connected to this mm. and if things are more kind of like mellow or calm it's almost that the type eight can get antsy because they want to to get challenged something uh, these are a lot of times you can find it kind of your all or nothing type of people if i'm in i'm all in and i'm gonna kind of make it make it happen mm-hmm. um and so this kind of lust is for that intensity and also the control right if i'm in control if i'm the one who kind of is, ha- is making it happen then nothing bad will happen mm-hmm. i won't be controlled i won't be powerless or taken advantage of and so mm-hmm. this can kind of really kind of hold them back in a a lot of ways in their relationships in life um at their healthiest though eights embody this powerful energy and they're directing it towards some aim that really is trying to bring about so much good in the world and to the people around them they can have big hearts that really are trying to to champion the cause of others and when they're living into that health right there they can do so much to to really kind of live into that yeah it's almost like um they have to be aware of how they're using their assertiveness, right? I guess assertiveness would be a really natural skill for an eight, but kind yeah. of have to keep an eye and a bead on how that's being utilized. Right? Yes. Yes. I would say eights for sure. They can really channel that assertiveness. And what they have to watch for, to your point, is that assertiveness turning into aggression, right? Uh, um, there could be a fine line between that. And if the eight's not aware... They can be aggressive when they're trying to be assertive. And so being able to, to, to recognize these things in them allows them to know how to move forward in the world. Um, mm-hmm. I think eights are another type, to your to your point about fours, that can get a bad rap a lot of times. People right. are going to be like, oh, like I've had bad experience with eights or eights or this or that, right? Um, but I think for me, it, it really kind of hits on 
certain stereotypes of type that aren't getting at what's actually going underneath the type and also what the eight when they're living an aware life can really get to. Sure. Um, What I always think of when I think of an eight is Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa is kind of by most people typed as an eight, which you'd never think, right? Like she's this this caring person. But if you actually read about her life, we find that she was someone who kind of had an edge to her. She kind of had this force and like to live the life of impact that she lived, there had to have been something that was pushing her and driving her. Sure. She and she fiery. Woman. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and so yeah. I, that's what I always think of. Like, you know, eights don't have to be just these domineering, dominant people who are just trying to, to take advantage. No, no, there can be so much good that comes from an eight who's living consciously and aware of how these things are showing up. Oh, nice. I would have always thought she was a two. Yes. I feel like everybody would probably go. To yeah, what, and see, that's the thing is most. I think a lot of people typically think that. And I mean, I would normally think that too. And right. what's interesting, if we're talking about the lines again, mm-hmm. we find that eight has a line, a connection to two. And so uh, when we think about Mother uh, Teresa, she was probably leaving, uh, leaning heavily into that two and drawing upon that big heart. I've heard a word used for eights that in their healthiest, what they look like, what, and they it's magnanimous hearts these just wide open hearts that just want to kind of like swallow people into it and like push forward like so much good and like i think eights there's that space inside of them and and if they're able to kind of get in touch with that and be able to break down some of those walls they can really live in a way that is that is wholehearted while also like pushing forward so much good sure that describes me perfectly (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I that's I mean that's a great overview of the eight. And yeah, I mean you're right. My my even my my I thought to myself the overlord of the office. Right, that's what I said. That's the stereotype of the eight. Right. That but the way you just broke that down sort of dissolves that stereotype. Well, granted, you can I guess become that if you're not doing that. Uh, you know, doing that mindfulness and catching and and seeing where your health and stress levels are at, right? You can totally bend in that direction, um, but but it sounds like there's actually a lot of buffer room before you get there. The way you just described that, so yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. I think it, it's hard because especially as it's gotten more popular, there's people who kind of learn a little about the enneagram and then they kind of share it with a lot of people, which isn't bad. But that's what happens is these stereotypes, you know, happen, right? And then we, and then these kind of become our ideas of the type. And like, while some of those, you know, the overlord of the workplace, while that can happen at times with eight, that definitely can. We don't want to, we don't want to minimize or say that that's not a reality that happens for eights. We don't want that to be the way that we kind of overall think of them. Sure. We want to recognize that while this is, yes, a reality, there's also this corresponding healthy place that allows them to, in, let's say in the workplace, right, lead effectively in a way that really is kind of like protecting and taking care of their team. Sure. Like that opposite kind of corollary um, existence is available in the workplace for an aide as well. And nice. so um, definitely want to be able to kind of have it be both sides. So, sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the old peacemaker. Yes. Number nine. Yes. I do know that one. That's right. <laughs> That's your show. So we have the core fear of the type nine is being dismissed or not worth keeping. Um, so then they have a coping belief to have belonging, you must blend in and go with the flow. So for the type nines, we find that they are typically peaceful, open-minded, empathetic. They're able to see all sides of different things and they, they want kind of peace um, and calm to kind of be in their environment. Mm-hmm. We find with them that they're typically good mediators um, and there's this empathy that allows them to be able to kind of connect with others. We find with this kind of peacefulness that peace is, is a really driving force. And this is peace not only, not only internally but externally. 
So internally, that's kind of feeling peace within themselves, and I want to be kind of peace and calm and relax, but also I want peace in my environment. I don't want conflict. I don't want things to be just uneasy or, or, or rough, and so I want things to be kind of calm and peaceful, mm-hmm. and so this drives a lot of their life. Um, and what can happen, though, is part of how the type 9 can get by is I don't want to maybe rough, ruffle feathers. I don't want to kind of like rock the boat. And so it's almost easier for me to just kind of go along with what other people are wanting or what other people are asserting. And so they can just kind of go along. They can kind of almost float um, in a way with, with whatever group of people they're a part of kind of. And at times it can it can feel like almost the path, the, the path of least resistance for them mm-hmm. because it's kind of like, this is good. I, I'm pretty easygoing. It's fine. It's, it's good. I'll just kind of do whatever. Yeah. What happens, though, is when your default is doing that is you can become more and more disconnected from yourself, more and more disconnected from, well, well, what do I actually think or what do I actually feel or, or how do I want to kind of go about living my life? Like, what, where, where do I stand on this? Yes. That can be something that can be a little bit harder for them to, to be connected to. I've heard Nyes describe that when you kind of ask those questions and ask them to kind of sink into that, it's like, almost a haze sets in that it makes it hard for them to even kind of put words to it because they're so used to kind of just like almost merging with the people around them. Mm-hmm. And so for, for the type nine, this is something that they kind of naturally do. Um, and with this, right, they're going to bring so much good because they're able to kind of see both sides, bring people together. Mm-hmm. But again, there is this disconnection that can come to themselves, which leads to our vice and the vice for type nine is sloth. And sloth, what this looks like, you know, just like there's a lot of these um, kind of vices that don't match our typical opinion of what they are. What sloth looks like is kind of a self-forgetting. And this is basically a falling asleep to themselves. Nine's focus of attention is on the external environment and other people's kind of needs. And so they'll naturally kind of move in and kind of try to keep the peace around them. But it's harder for them to pay attention to, again, what's going on inside. Where do I stand? What do I feel? What do I think? And so this sloth is more of a sloth towards their own priorities, mm. towards their own goals, towards their own things that make them come alive. And as they fall asleep to themselves, it can be hard to kind of live out of that. Mm. That being said, when they're in a healthy place, then they're connected to these things that make them tick. When they're connected to their values and to their emotions and their belief systems, they're, they're able to kind of access those in a way that they can live robustly out of those while still being this peaceful mediating presence to the world around them. Uh, they're able to kind of be a presence that not, that doesn't kind of avoid conflict to kind of keep the peace, but instead is able to move into the conflict to mediate and to bring uh, that peacefulness to bear on the world around them. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> Just, Sounds familiar. Yeah, just kind of staring at Andrew. Right <laughs> now. Um, oh, I, 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 that that last part, that ability to step into the conflict, see both sides, but and not bend your own opinion and all of it, but to bring all three of those together, it's like, well, I'm thinking this, you're thinking this, you're thinking this. Like, how to let's let's look at ways to actually bring this together, problem solve it, right? Mm-hmm. I'd I'd say that's a strength of yours. Thanks, Andrew. No, I, uh, well, <laughs> no, no, I was just thinking it. You know, it really helps with family counseling. Um, to you know, part of family counseling is to obviously not be biased and everyone is equal in the room. Um, but you know, we're human, and so you know, it's easy to point out uh, certain personalities and you know, and and lean more towards you know one or the other person. But I, I yeah, I definitely think I'm able to kind of negate that and and really kind of you know see everybody as equals and and that kind of thing in those contexts Mm -hmm. yeah 
And that's yeah, you know, that's and that's not necessarily a natural tendency, kind of for that. It'd be one thing to see and to empathize. It's another thing to be able to step into those spaces like you're able to do, and then mediate and speak right. to the the, the conflict. Because mm. a lot of times for nines, it's almost a conflict avoidance, right? Like right. I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to step away, or I'm not going to address things that need to be addressed. And in a family counseling session, oh, yeah. there's no way you could do that, oh, right? Yeah. Like you will get steamrolled. And oh, so like totally. you you <laughs> have have like you know had to learn the ability to step into those spaces oh, yeah, and, and make that happen. Exactly, right? Yeah. Well, that's really. That's interesting. I mean, it may it may be a great segue for us to talk a little bit about our personal experiences, right? And you know, I wonder the extent to which our field, like being therapists, has actually forced us all to grow uh, in these in these types, right? I could I could name a bunch of different ways that that's the case for my for myself, but I wonder, like like. And how do you how do you see that the field has helped you grow Wes or Andrew? Like what do you feel like the field has pushed in you to be to be a healthier type, you know, or to be a, a more self actualized type? I don't even know if that's Enneagram terminology, right? I'm integrating yeah, <laughs> psych yeah, yeah, I'm integrating psych psych languages, but um yeah, what do you guys think? Uh yeah, so so I became a group therapist at one point, right? Which I mean, to to being a nine, I mean that you would think that like group therapy would be something that I would avoid, and historically, that's absolutely something. <laughs> I, would avoid. I even I changed my major one t- one time because they told me that I was going to have to do public speaking. Even doing this in particular is a stretch for me. I think everybody knows I stumble a little bit, but anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, I you know in in being immersed in conflict and specifically, I think working with addiction in a group setting and now uh, kind of finding a niche and working with couples and, you know, there's just, there's so much conflict that's brought into the room. Um, you know, I think, you know, I've had to get very comfortable with in conflict and non-judgment and, um, you know, trying to, to, to navigate some of those more complicated situations that I feel like, you know, typically someone with the nine personality type, would you, do you label it personality types? Yeah. yeah, that would, um, yeah. Uh, you know, those were the, like I said, those are the types of scenarios where in years past, I would have absolutely avoided those, those scenarios where now it's, you know, uh, just coming to work in itself is, you know, is, is pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it just kind of became a, um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I even really consider it or think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so what comes to mind for me is what you said, the bicep curl, right? Right. You're oh, almost yeah. in this profession forced to step into this place that at yeah. one point might've been uncomfortable, but you've almost been forced to. And as you've been forced to, it's helped you to grow in these ways. Right. So now it isn't just, something that yeah. you think about. Right. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And I think about for even just the field of therapy in general and us as therapists, I know, I know therapists, I think for just about every type and, I think it's hard not to be in this space with people every day and, and walking with them in their journeys and their struggles for it not to work on you in a, in a certain way that forces you to be introspective and, mm-hmm. and to see how kind of similar or corollary things are showing up for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely see that in, in myself as well. I'm a type three, uh, had a journey, thought I was a type nine for a little mm-hmm. bit, which is for all you people who you know mistype at first, that's a very normal thing. <laughs> but I think part of actually my role as a therapist was part of that. As a three, 
there is this kind of self-deceit at times, right? And, and so I think I almost internalize the role of a therapist, right? Mm. That kind of this peaceful, this, this kind of calming presence for people and didn't realize the kind of the internal workings of what was going on. And it was helpful for me, people coming alongside me and helping me begin to see these parts of myself. And they say that for the three, there definitely is more of an energy and kind of an excitement that's being brought. And I, I definitely now can recognize in myself there is a, a different energy in a, in a three as opposed to kind of oh, a yeah. nine. Um, and so for me, what that's done is opened up an an allowance for me to kind of be who I am, um, in a way that is able to kind of see the potential and see that in other people and and hope to bring that forth. Right. And, and what that does is I think for me as a three anyway, and the ways it's helped me grow is I think partly it's, it's the empathy factor, right? It's being able to connect to myself. Threes can be disconnected from themselves. And, mm. and in the counseling room, being able to connect to myself and as I'm hearing the stories and the experience of others, kind of it, it helps me attune to myself as I'm attuning to them, right? Mm. As I'm trying to, to be for them and to help them wherever that in their journey, um, it's, it's something that's, that's experiencing us both being present together. And, and what that does is it then can help me move into my spaces at home, right? And the spaces in my relationships where I'm able to, to stay connected to myself. And this isn't something I'm just like a pro at now, right? It's something I still have to constantly struggle with, with trying to embody. But being in the counseling space, at least for me, is, is that repetition, right? It's kind of putting me in a place where I constantly have to be mindful of these things so that I can allow kind of the work that needs to be done in me to be done. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm so, so grateful to be in a space that allows that to, that process to begin. To yeah. Happen. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I connect with several of the things that you, you guys just mentioned and, you know, with the, the seven, the, the primary fear being of pain or suffering, right. It's, <clears throat> um, I mean, that's, that is the therapy office, or at least my therapy office is that's what I'm stepping into on an hourly basis, right? I'm stepping into suffering, stepping into pain. My target, my, my target clientele are, um, severe and reoccurring depression, uh, chronic illnesses, like things, death, um, severe childhood trauma, severe adult trauma. Like that's what I, and enjoy doing therapy with that's what I enjoy helping people go through and so obviously like obviously that is a challenge to this avoidance of pain because I'm willfully stepping into it with another person right and and then I also like have to contend with that on a almost a sometimes a minute by minute basis because I think as a seven there's a tendency sometimes to like immediately look to a silver lining or immediately look to something that's positive to try and counter this negative like the comma but have you thought about right it's like it's like no I I I do offer a fair amount of that I tell my clients it's like I there's a pit and I know you're in this pit of suffering right and I will I will put one foot in it with you and I, my half my body is there and I am there, but one of us has to keep a foot out, right? And and that's sort of the hope I think that a seven can really bring into the field is like uh, that that approach of there is there is either an end to this or there is another way to look at it that's also helpful, right? Um, but man, you talk about challenging. Like I've spent a good amount of time at this point considering death. I was on a hike um, recently, and my I was in the car with my 
my parents. It was a benefit for, benefit for them. And they were kind of asking me how therapy was going and like how my personal inner workings were going. And I was like, well, I've come up with this catchphrase. And they're like, yeah. I was like, yeah, we're all violently hurling towards an imminent death. And they like, they like, my mom turned around and looked at me and was like, what? <laughs> and my dad was like, geez, Josh, that's depressing. <laughs> like but that's what i've been sitting with you know it's like death is imminent but at the same time like understanding that death is imminent and that it will happen to you allows you to have this sort of freedom to experience each moment that you're given which is the the positive of the seven it's like embracing the suffering and the death actually allows you to enjoy things more fully because you realize they're finite rather than just moving from thing to thing to thing to thing avoiding all of your pain which for me on the journey understanding that uh, that avoiding the pain was an actual thing i didn't have words for it until Mm -hmm. the enneagram actually and it and i also discovered as a seven right you have to be careful with substances especially uppers right everything from caffeine to cocaine but i'm not touching cocaine so that's good but like you do have to you do have to kind of be aware of what you're putting into your body even because of that inclination to just make the experience more intense right better the best Mm -hmm. experience or turn this thing into awesomeness or sheer awesomeness and see the potential for it right live it to the fullest right yeah living it this can help me kind of get that that i want that yeah but what's interesting is is like death doesn't kill you death makes you live it's a it's a really cool maxim of for a seven for me to realize and i think therapy has opened my eyes to that is that true living to the fullest is an acknowledgement that you will die like and that there is suffering and that is a reason to actually enjoy things for what they are instead of trying to enhance them right that's kind of been my journey with it it's like they are good as they are right um and it's a beautiful way to live and i think that's why i there were even some of the four things that i connected with there um but really i know i'm talking a bunch but i'm super excited about this so (laughs) the yeah uh but but when i when i'm plugged into the more healthy parts of the one and five it's interesting how they all interchange with each other because what will happen is is like this study of death and suffering I actually took it on as a five would. Um, and the discipline of the one sort of informed me as far as the, the moral structure of it. Like this is a moral discussion. It's not just head knowledge. And my inner seven was like, oh my gosh, like I'm enjoying my breathing more, right? Guys, like this is working, <laughs> right? We're all working together, right? But I guess the, the downside of that too is like I can be especially when I'm when I'm getting a new project underway or um, you know getting into a new research study um, I, I think I, I bend in that in that unhealthy five direction sometimes when I'm stressed where I just like mm, I get possessive over it right it's like nope like it's um, it struck me as paranoid a couple of times too, which is really interesting. Like when that happens and I'm like, oh, that's weird. You know, that's not typically, that's not typically the case, but I do tend to sort of 
bend in that direction where I get possessive and, and for me to be possessive, that's a problem. That's a problem on multiple playing fields. So it gets addressed really quickly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just rambled a bunch there. Sorry. That's, that's kind of how the field has helped me though. And also just some of my own journey as a seven. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's it, right? You mentioned like the one and the five, right? And like yes. different points, especially in your healthiest, being able to really live into both aspects of that. And it, combining right because when i think mm-hmm. of a five i think of being able to really dive deep into the understanding and the knowledge but then moving to that one being connected to what you value yes. and what is right and like being able to take steps towards that right yes. so it's almost combining those two and uh-huh. in a seven that can be harder to kind of land and then follow through mm-hmm. you combining that seven and the one when you're leaning in a healthy way to both of them yes. it really does open up the door for so much yes i tell you what having a wife who's a one two helps right it's a, not a one two but a one <laughs> <laughs> a one also um that that definitely helps balance out some of that that seven tendency for sure yeah there's definitely quite a bit of seven one couples that mm-hmm. i know as well pretty common pairing so yeah, yeah that's great yeah yeah i love her that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> i love I, I love the challenge that she brings me as well it's helpful like 100 percent of the time actually so anyway well cool um so I guess we could we could wrap up from there or I mean we can continue to kind of explore these stories Wes I don't know how what your time is looking like but I know you're trained in the more narrative part of Enneagram stuff and hearing this these things from Andrew and I are any sort of like narrative questions pop up for you Yeah um that's interesting I think not off if I'd been thinking more in the moment, probably mm-hmm. probably gotcha. taken kind of more advantage of that. Because part of what I love about the the narrative tradition and one of the main teaching tools for the narrative um, enneagram is the use of panels. And what panels are is typically two to three to four people of the same type. Um, and so, like at a workshop or whatnot, they would you know all be together and then. What I would do as as kind of a trained teacher is I would kind of ask them questions about their experiences, whatever number they are. And as they share their stories, they share their experience, I'm kind of going to be following up with certain questions and pressing certain areas and allowing them to kind of share what's going on inside. And it's so impactful because we really can get at the inner workings of like what's going on. And I've heard so many stories from different numbers that have just like, Oh man, they just so, they've changed the game honestly in the mm-hmm. ways that I view these numbers because I because of the the vulnerability and the ways that they're able to kind of really open themselves up. It's been an, an incredible gift to me, um, and I know for me being in those spaces and, and really wanting to kind of cultivate that safety sure um, is important to me, um, as well as being able to give people the opportunity to one share their story and to feel seen and heard in a way, but then also the gift that is to other people. Mm-hmm. When I when I hear someone share from their heart uh, how these things show up, it's hard for me not to be affected. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what really makes this come alive. This mm-hmm. is not, it can be just a theory that we kind of talk about in cool, but when it's kind of spoken and taught in the form of hearing people's stories, it, it goes much deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's definitely impacted me. Mm-hmm. Well, right on. So yeah, that, the, the, me asking you if you have any narrative questions, I didn't realize it like requires like, uh, some full panel. Yeah. Like some full panel. <laughs> and dialogue, yeah, yeah, right. Sorry sure. about that. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> but what? it's good. It's good to hear what the narrative training in 
Enneagram actually is and kind of how you approach that. So um, still good stuff. Good stuff, man. Well, Wes, uh, I learned a ton tonight. Thanks so much for coming out to the podcast, man. Um, again, Wes is, uh, what, what is your title at Enneagram Chattanooga? Um, founder, coach. Okay, founder and coach of yep. Enneagram Chattanooga. You guys can check him out uh, online. We'll put the links in the description below the podcast. You'll find it on our website. Um, we'll probably put a little blog post out about this as well on the website with some helpful links. I'm sure it would be helpful to to have maybe some resources from Wes Um whether there's some websites you could think of, some oh, yeah. book resources. I mean, yeah, for sure. Maybe we can go ahead and put that all in a blog and follow this up as well so you guys have some good resources. Um, but man, thanks again for your time, Wes. Uh, and best of luck with the, the Enneagram Chattanooga venture. We hope that's successful. Hopefully this leads a few people your way as well. Yeah, thank you so much. It really, I mean, I love this stuff. It's impacted me so much. And so anytime I get the opportunity to be able to share this, um, it really is a, a blessing. So thank you so much for the opportunity. I really yeah, appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. Well, Andrew and Josh signing off. We'll, um, we'll check you next time. Not really sure what's coming down the pipe as far as uh, another podcast, but we will definitely have one for you sooner rather than later. All right. Thanks, guys. Google. <laughs> nice. You have been listening to The Counselor's Chair, sponsored by Traverse Counseling Services. For more information, visit our website at www.traversecounselingservices.com or email us at contact at infotraverse.com. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. This podcast was recorded and produced by Josh Zello.